Dr. Whitworth co-chaired this ASBS Patterns of Care project and worked closely with our group to develop the actual survey. To begin our interview, we chatted about the overall results of the survey, specifically related to systemic therapy issues. I think overall the fact that practicing surgeons tended to know a lot more than they might have even thought they knew and matched really the investigator surgeons and the oncologist on issues that are sort of well understood and settled. I like the fact that the surgeons who are out there doing this work are really well informed. And you know it's interesting because when you and I were first starting to talk about this, it goes back six months now, we didn't know what we were going to see. And you know we had seen a couple of the initial responses from some of the surgeons who tested it saying you're going to be disappointed in what you're going to see and that you know made us concerned but I agree with you when you really look overall what you see is a high fraction of these surgeons are seem quite up to date on systemic issues the other observation is that they sort of knew when they knew right and they knew when they didn't know so that that was uh, that showed up One of the first things that I wanted to ask you about is the issue of timing of sentinel node biopsy. Of course, that's in patients getting neoadjuvant systemic therapy. I don't know that it happens that often, but when it does, obviously there's a lot of controversy about whether it should be before or after. You can see in general the surgical investigators lean strongly towards doing it after. What's sort of the evidence behind that? Well, in the first place, that's a very recent trend. I think what's happening here is we are catching a trend that should be and is being led by the surgeon investigators, and these numbers will probably change in a few years, but it is a complex question. Number one, the question was, is it accurate after neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Could you sterilize the disease in the sentinel node but not in another node and get an incorrect answer? So that was the first big question that we were unsure about. And in the early 2000s, studies suggested that maybe it wasn't as accurate. They were sort of all over the map. They were small studies, just like any new question that we get into. But as the decade went on, the reports, especially in the middle of 2005, 2006, started showing us that indeed it was accurate. In fact, if you look at the NSABP studies, In particular, we see that the sentinel node staging done after the neoadjuvant treatment in the neoadjuvant studies done by the NSABP, absolutely as accurate comparing the sentinel node to the rest of the axilla as the B32 study, which is the NSABP study doing sentinel node without neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So I think the question now, looking at these more recent reports, and especially looking at those two NSABP studies, shows tremendous accuracy. The other problem with the neoadjuvant report from the NSABP originally was, unless you really read that paper, it looked like the accuracy rate was worse. When they broke it out and said patients who had isotope in addition to blue dye mapping, the accuracy was actually a little bit better, not statistically, I bet, but was a little bit better than the NSABP B32 no chemotherapy sentinel node trial. So that question has been answered, so that gives us a little more comfort. But then the second question is even more problematic, and it really is vexing for radiation oncologists as well. How do we know how many nodes were positive, and how do we know who gets radiation therapy? And it affects both the mastectomy patients and the breast conservation patients. If you're a breast conservation patient and you have four positive nodes, most radiation oncologists will include a supraclavicular field. Or if you're having a mastectomy and you have four positive nodes, most will do chest wall radiation therapy. 
So is this suppressing or hiding information that's critically important to patient decision-making? That's the next big challenge that is still out there and really is troubling to some people. About this time, we are all convinced that the most powerful prognostic information you can get in a patient who's getting neoadjuvant therapy is their response to neoadjuvant treatment. And so the response information is beginning to be more important than some of the other prognostic factors in that set of patients. So if you take the nodes out before you do neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you don't really know how the nodes responded. You'd really like to know if you have a lot of positive nodes after your neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So it appears to be obscuring that old decision point where we said four positive nodes, radiation therapy, and yet we have a lot of reason to want to try it. Terry Maminus really has begun to shed some light on this. He went back and reviewed now both of the neoadjuvant studies from the NSABP, and he looked at what happened, because those patients did not get their sentinel nodes up front. They got them afterwards. And he looked at what the local regional failure rate was and looked at the lymph node status and also looked at whether or not the patient had had a complete pathologic response. And it turns out that this is a preliminary review of that data, and he did present that data at a conference called by the NCI about neoadjuvant treatment. And so I can't say that it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal at this point, but I've talked with him and looked at the data, and it's pretty clear from that data that if you have a single positive node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, your risk for local regional recurrence is significantly over 10%. And that level of risk, significantly over 10%, maybe around 14%, is enough for us to begin to think this may have a survival impact as well. So certainly we would want to treat those patients that have a level of local regional recurrence in that 14% range. On the other hand, if they had completely negative nodes afterwards, their risk for local regional recurrence was somewhere in the 6 to 8% range. And so that at least in my practice now, having looked at the value of the response information and looking at the summary that Terry did, that's the way we make that decision. It's now if a patient has a single positive node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we are recommending either supraclavicular radiation for the breast conservation patient or chest wall. It's not as big a question as one might think because if a patient starts with a stage 3 presentation, a tumor bigger than 5 centimeters or matted lymph nodes, All of those patients need radiation therapy, and so you're not really suppressing a decision point at all. Dr. Buckholz and his colleagues at MD Anderson and others have tried, have actually published their experience with saying, gosh, this patient had such a good response, even though she started with an 8-centimeter tumor. Maybe we don't need radiation therapy, and clearly the failure rate, if you try to omit it in those stage 3 patients, is higher. So we're really just talking about the stage 2 patients. How do you factor in the number of sentinel nodes identified? In other words, if you have three sentinel nodes identified versus one sentinel node in terms of predicting whether or not there really is a positive axilla? Well, you know, I think it really kind of goes back to the sentinel node staging procedure in general and how one does that. Kelly McMaster's group just did a tremendous service by gathering a lot of information about sentinel node staging back when people were doing 20 cases or so with the sentinel node and the axilla. And so Kelly's group, with several thousand patients, showed several interesting findings that have sort of marked what we've done since. And one of the findings is that if a person is routinely removing a single sentinel node, then their false negative rate is going to be higher. 
If a person has an average of two sentinel nodes per case, then their false negative rate is going to be much lower. Also, in that study, using isotope and blue dye together, at least early in someone's experience, helped. I think the memorial group has shown that if you've had a pretty big experience with sentinel node staging, you may be able to omit the blue dye and not really see an effect there. But I do think every surgeon that does sentinel node staging should endeavor to get more than a single sentinel node. There are cases where that's all it is. That's all there is, and that's all there is to it. But I think it's very important to look hard and long for that second node because you have that level of accuracy that you have in the first place. Is that basically what's involved, is looking more intently? Taking extra time with the gamma probe to interrogate every bit of the axilla, levels one and level two, and really not coming to a conclusion too quickly. And if you have a weak signal, but it seems to be a hot spot, dissect toward that a little closer and get that gamma probe right up next to that node. And if it is greater than 10% of the hottest node, that's your node to take out. What about the issue of ultrasound and fine needle aspiration of the axilla? What do you think about that? And to what extent is it being done? I think it's becoming more and more routine in either surgeon's hands or the radiologist's hands. If you have a patient who has a diagnosis of breast cancer, you really can, in cases that have positive nodes, often find that out in advance and sort of spare that whole part of the process, the sentinel node injection and the procedure, if you see that node with ultrasound and do an FNA if it's positive. On the other hand, you don't get enough information from a negative test to say don't do any staging, but the positive test really does. Do you do that yourself? Many surgeons do. I do it myself in my practice, and I know there are some excellent radiologists that do it as well, but we do it routinely. Hmm. One of the things we asked about in the survey was the issue of partial breast irradiation. Anything there that sort of jumped out at you? Well, I'm impressed that this is perhaps more available than I thought. It looks like 89% of the surgeon investigators and 67%, so a majority in both cases, are referring patients for partial breast radiation therapy or using it themselves. I guess another thing we asked them was the issue of age. And you had actually put these questions together. And it looks like a substantial number of the docs are using age as a criteria to recommend PBI. What are your thoughts about what we saw there? And what do you do? Well, the American Society of Breast Surgeons' recommendation is that this not be done in women under 45 years. And we all practice medicine as an individual practice, and so I think everybody at one time or another has made a decision to do something different than guidelines. But in general, the ASBS guidelines are for a cutoff at age 45. The American Brachytherapy Society cutoff recommendation is age 50. And what's the thinking behind it? Well, if you look at local recurrence risk, it is very, very strongly influenced by age. So women who've had a breast conservation procedure under age 40 have a much higher local recurrence risk than women who are over 50. That 40 to 50 transition, if you pull out some group of those patients, like you pull out 40 to 50, they will have a higher local recurrence rate than patients who are over 50. And so the ABS grappled with this, and the American Society of Breast Surgeons has grappled with this and sort of weighing the pros and cons. I think we actually may have flipped. I think in the beginning we started out with 50, and they had 45, and now it's reversed. But somewhere in that 45 to 50 range is the time when most people are comfortable applying it. Certainly in women under 40, those women have a long time to be at risk, and people really want to wait on a little more data there. Frankly, if you look at the 
theoretical underpinnings for partial breast radiation therapy. It may be the case that we're being more selective than we need to be, but the B39 trial, hopefully now that they're excluding all of the super low-risk patients, will be able to answer that. Another thing we asked about was the question of size. Is there an upper limit to size? And most people felt that there was somewhere around three centimeters. Yeah, it is around three centimeters. I liked that the investigator surgeon's average was 2.8 and the general surgeon's average was 3.1, which looks pretty close to three in both cases. And I think that's certainly the ABS and the ASBS recommendations. In fact, that's included as one of the parts of the B39 study. When those studies are completed, will somebody offer it to a patient with a tumor that's 3.5 centimeters? Probably yes. But for now, I think most people try to make a cutoff at 3 centimeters. And again, what's the thinking behind that? Again, it's mainly local recurrence risk, and there is a trend toward increased local recurrence with larger and larger tumors, but it's otherwise fairly an arbitrary cutoff. And, you know, back in the day when we were first doing breast conservation surgery, people would say, well, I cut it off right at three centimeters. I cut it off at four. Some people cut it off at five. And now we have gotten a little more maybe reasonable where we say, well, it depends on the size of the breast and the size of the tumor and what makes sense. Another issue is the type of PBI not too surprising that balloon catheter, external beam, conformal are the two approaches that people are most using as opposed to brachytherapy. But I thought it was interesting that almost a quarter of the investigators are using intraoperative radiation therapy. Do you do that? We have not done that in Nashville. Mel Silverstein is very excited about this technology, and every time this topic comes up, he has told me about his experience that they're having there. And really, there's a lot of appeal there. You know, the treatment is done while the patient is asleep. They never even have to go to an appointment for radiation therapy. On the other hand, it's technically very demanding, expensive, and challenging. I think if the data that are coming from the Italian studies and from these investigators, and these are academicians that are doing this in most cases. If that data really supports it, then you may see people go to the difficulty and expense to employ it. But right now, it is pretty much investigational. Now, another thing we asked is whether or not either lobular cancer or positive axillary nodes would be a contraindication either relative or absolutely to the use of PBI. And we see a little bit of difference of opinion here. Some people think lobular cancer is a contraindication. Some think positive nodes is a contraindication. But there's sort of a heterogeneity of how people see that. How do you see it? Well, for right now, we are recommending that patients who get partial breast radiation therapy be node-negative patients. And again, it's another way that we can estimate the patient's risk for local recurrence. So I think most people in most cases, again, people make exceptions in certain cases, but most people in most cases are reserving partial breast radiation therapy for patients with axillary nodes for the B39 trial. I think that is the patient that I want to see in the B39 trial because when it's said and done and we have the results from that trial, nobody's going to really be that impressed that it works in patients who are over 50 ER positive, small tumor, low risk. What we really want an answer from that trial about is these higher risk patients who are either younger or have positive nodes or one of those things. Lobular cancer is one of those things that depends on your point of view. Frankly, what we really know is that lobular cancer of a given size, once measured, removed, and examined, behaves just the same as ductal cancer of the same size. It's just that the 
imaging signature of a lobular cancer is frequently misleading. So until you've got the histology, a lobular cancer may look much smaller, and people have had difficulty with getting negative margins with lobular cancers for years for that reason, because it turned out to be much more extensive than any imaging or other pre-op evaluation suggested. And the societies have really initially started with ductal cancer as part of their recommendations. But in my practice, if I have a patient with a lobular cancer that otherwise meets all those criteria, I will still use partial breast radiation therapy in that. But that's more of an individual choice. You know, getting back to the positive nose, you know, I always try to think, is it something about the way we worded the question that's giving us a spurious answer? But it is a little strange that it's like a 50-50 split. you think in reality there's that difference in terms of the perception of this issue? It may be the case, although I think if it was influenced by the B39 trial, certainly if the patient is in that B39 trial, she's got positive nodes, for instance, she is a candidate for partial breast radiation therapy and anyone would feel fine about that. So we may be getting a little confusion out of that, but you're seeing the same number, 57% and 56% in the investigators and the general surgeons. And that may just be a place where general surgeons and surgeon investigators say, you know, thanks for the recommendations, but we're going to make our own choice here. Interesting. I want to ask you about what we asked in terms of breast MRI. We said, you know, what situation are you ordering MRI for patients with breast cancer? Maybe a quarter to a third or doing it on everybody. Patients with BRCA1 or 2 mutations or not having bilateral mastectomies very commonly utilized. Patients with axillary nodes and no primary tumor detected, very common situation. Patients are getting neoadjuvant systemic therapy. There you see kind of an interesting split that the investigators almost always use MRI, whereas the surgeons in practice use it a lot less frequently. What's your take on these answers? The classic indication for an MRI is a patient with a nodal metastasis and no detectable primer in the breast, and 89% of them use it there. And the BRCA1 and 2 motivates people. So those are fairly very well accepted. It's a little bit surprising to me that that number is not 100% with the positive axillary node and no primary tumor detectable in the breast. But I think some people still may do mastectomy, and some people, in fact, may do radiation therapy. There are both camps out there, and when no tumor is detectable at all, I think there are strong feelings on both sides of that. Another thing I want to ask you about is the issue of the use of chemotherapy in patients with breast cancer, and specifically the integration of the Ocotype DX into that decision. The first thing that we asked the surgeons was, what's your perception about how oncologists are utilizing chemotherapy in general? And you can see that there's a substantial number of surgeons and surgical investigators who feel that oncologists use a little bit more chemotherapy than maybe is in the patient's best interest. What's your take on that? Well, I think surgeons in general really, really are put off by the idea that you can take a treatment that improves the outcome by a given percentage. We'll say the the patient has an 85% chance of cure, and you're going to give all of those patients with an 85% chance of cure chemotherapy so that the rate of cure goes up to 90%. If you look at that, you helped five patients. And you really, surgeons have never been happy that we weren't selecting the patients that needed the treatment. For a surgeon, that's sort of like saying, well, if we do a hernia repair on every baby that's born, we'll reduce the hernia rate, but we'd really rather do the repair on the baby that it's going to benefit. And the same thing is true with regard to systemic adjuvant chemotherapy decision-making, we'd like to give it to the people who benefit. For years, we were very troubled by the 
looking very closely at the NSABP studies and the conclusion that the NSABP made was that they couldn't find any group that didn't benefit. And so pretty much people said anybody with a tumor over a centimeter, even though we knew the majority of patients were not getting a benefit, we just couldn't see who it was. So I think there is a lot of excitement in the surgical community when, as people have learned about this genetic profiling, genomic profiling of a given tumor, to see is it one that really benefits or is it not one that benefits. One of the things that's also come out is the question of which type of assay to do. We have available both the Oncotype DX and the Mammoprint assay, and there were a couple of letters to the editor recently in the Journal of Clinical Oncology about this because the ASCO Tumor Marker Guideline Committee came out saying that they felt that Oncotype now is a routine part of practice in patients with node-negative, HER2-negative, ER-positive tumors, and didn't provide that same level of support for the mammoprint. And there were a couple of letters coming in from people who would work with mammoprint, you know, objecting to that. What's your take on that issue? This is kind of an interesting transatlantic argument that's developing. And it is true that the Oncotype assay was developed in the U.S. and rolled out here. And the mammoprint assay was developed in Europe and rolled out there. And that has something to do with it. But I think if you look at both data sets right now, the way that the Oncotype data set has been analyzed and reported with a low-risk group, an intermediate-risk group, and a high-risk group, we're really identifying in that low-risk group patients that have a better than 90% chance of cure. That's high enough that it seems unreasonable to think we're going to really make that a lot better with well, chemotherapy. Plus the fact that it doesn't look like chemotherapy lowers that. That's right. It doesn't look like those patients get any benefit from chemotherapy. We don't really have that kind of an analysis with the mammoprint. What we have with mammoprint is a good prognosis and a bad prognosis, but the good prognosis is still not upwards of 90%. And I think it may be that it has that much power, but it's just not been reported that way. So we're a little less comfortable with that. I'd like to see more data there. In the MINDAC trial in Europe, mammoprint is included in the decision-making, but it doesn't mandate In the Oncotype study in the U.S., the Taylor X trial, the patients are really segregated, and so the patients with a low, low score are not randomized. The patients with a high score are not randomized, just those in the middle. It does have a little bit to do with where it came from. There was also a bit of controversy about the original mammoprint reports where part of the patients in the validation set, not a big part, but a small part of the patients in the validation set, were pulled from the training set, were pulled from the initial calibration set. And that's a no-no. That's not what you want to see. You want to develop the marker in one set of patients, get your assay picked, set your cutoffs, and then apply it in a completely independent group. And that really, for whatever reason, they included some patients in both of those groups. There's a little discomfort with that. And then there was a larger study in multiple sites in Europe where, yes, indeed, the mammoprint did powerfully predict differences in outcome, but not as powerfully as that original study. So I think in the end, we will find a really good use for both of these. And in the end, beyond that, neither will be the last genomic assay we use. But right now, it has a little bit to do with transatlantic politics. I guess there's also the practical issue that the mammoprint requires fresh tissue. That's right. It has to be fresh tissue within a fairly short amount of time. And We are not really set up in multiple sites in the U.S. to do that, and that is a tremendous advantage 
to the Oncotype approach where you can use paraffin embedded tissue. And that's really what allowed us to validate it so powerfully. The NSAVP studies that were used to validate that are many years old and have long follow-up. And so we could take tissue from those original patient tumors and do the assay on those and really see greater than 10 years of follow-up. They're also now, or we're starting to see data coming out looking at Oncotype in patients with node-positive ER-positive tumors. Can you talk a little bit about what's been seen there and whether you think that's kind of ready for prime time? It's not a big surprise. It started to make sense when we looked at the data over and over again in the node-negative patients, and it looked like patients who had a very low score didn't really benefit from chemotherapy but had a pretty big benefit from endocrine therapy. And on the other end of the spectrum, patients with a high score had a very big benefit from chemotherapy, in fact, carried the entire group, made the entire group look statistically significantly different when really they were the big difference and less benefit in those high-score patients with endocrine therapy. So it made sense to most people looking at that data set that when we look at this in node-positive patients, it would probably be similar. On the other hand, node positivity with a relatively slow-growing tumor, a relatively unaggressive tumor, still means something's been going on for a longer period of time. So you may have the same tumor with the same genomic proclivities. If it's there much, much longer and has been there long enough to get node positivity, maybe that outcome is worse. And indeed, Kathy Albane's presentation at the San Antonio meeting this past winter showed that. These patients didn't do as well, obviously, as patients who were node negative, but that benefit from chemotherapy appeared in the high-score patients and very little, no benefit seen in that study, which was a SWOG study originally, in the patients with a low score. The patients have a high event rate, and so we need some, this is pointing everyone to look at more novel approaches to these patients because the chemotherapy doesn't seem to be doing what we want it to do in node-positive patients. Is it ready for prime time? Well, I don't think so. I think people are beginning to include that information in their decision-making to some extent about these patients. But I don't think most people are sending off Oncotype analysis for their patient with five positive nodes. I think no one has that level of bravery and no one is that convinced. I do know that the breast cancer intergroup is considering including those patients, not in the same manner that the node-negative patients are included, but perhaps randomizing patients who are in the low-score group to see if there is indeed any benefit. I think people are going to be cautious about applying this new data with that single report, although, frankly, looking at the data, it's pretty compelling. And it kind of makes sense theoretically, I think. I mean, it does. The whole concept of biology as opposed to sort of pathology or anatomy I guess what I've heard about is if it was going to be considered a non-protocol sending a node-positive patient, as you say, low tumor burden, maybe one positive node or microscopic node, but also maybe just like everything else with the oncotype, somebody where you're on the fence, older patient, comorbidities, or just a patient who's really reluctant to have chemotherapy. Does that scenario of you know the low nodal burden patient on the fence, is that something that would get you to think about it off protocol, or do you think that we need No, to absolutely. I think that that's where I've used it in my practice, and I think when it is used right now, that's the case where you have comorbidities and you have a very low tumor burden. In fact, the NCCN guidelines include consideration for oncotype testing in patients who have a 0.2 to 2 millimeter so-called micrometastasis in the lymph node.